My name is John Lynn. Uh, my father was Harry Lynn. He bought the Uline Arena in 1960 and owned it until around 1970, changed the name to the Washington Coliseum. Yeah, the interesting thing, I mean, that whole thing with the, how he got the Beatles, it just was all, uh, at least as I remember, it was all pretty much of a fluke. I mean, I, I think I've, I've said this before, but it, it you know, um, they had this open date because they were between Ed Sullivan and the Carnegie Hall, uh, uh, the, you know, that they were playing Carnegie Hall on Wednesday. And they had this open date on uh, Tuesday. And so, and they, apparently they just hadn't booked it, you know, in advance when they booked the rest of the tour. And they were just looking around for some place that they could get to and get back to New York in time to play Carnegie Hall. So that's why they called uh, my father, because they thought that Washington was close enough they could make it back. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. Well, that was fun last week. Jim Roberts talking about his book, Fab Fools. Yeah. Available here in the States on Audible and on Amazon, which, well, they are a single entity now, but he wants you to buy the book if you can. Makes sense. But I do hope to have him on again. Well, I mean, there's lots more comedy stuff that we can talk about with regards to the Beatles. So it's been a big week for uh, Beatle Beatles. Yes, indeed. Which would you want to cover first? Ringo came out with uh, his book. We actually got our grubby hands on it, those of us who had ordered it from Julian's auctions. It's very nice. You dirtied it with grubby hands? I took the gloves off the first time I unwrapped <laughs> it. So, you know. But yes, he did indeed legitimately obtain the rights to publish these photos. Of course, Apple owned a significant number of these photos already. As he describes it, he spent much of the pandemic sitting on his computer or sitting on his phone scrolling through Beatles photos, and <laughs> he would find ones that he liked. <laughs> so he's just like the rest of us now. He presents them in the book more or less as if they were Facebook posts or if they were uh, pictures going up on Instagram or on Twitter. And he writes captions, but he also, in the style of Paul in the lyrics book, writes longer descriptions of what these images bring to mind for him. Yeah, I saw him the other night on Jimmy Fallon. and Kimmel, the ABC guy. All the late night hosts are called Jimmy now. Jimmy Colbert. There's a photo that he showed. He says that. Now, where are you in this, this shot? Do you remember? No idea. The media gets it all horribly wrong. Uh, there is a picture of them sitting with George Martin in the EMI canteen. Uh, well, Ringo's caption is, this was great. This was the early days when the strongest thing we took in the studios was tea. <laughs> right. But the Guardian captioned this photo as saying, oh, it's them outside sitting in a cafe. Uh, <laughs> look at the picture. They're indoors. They're in a fairly drab enclosed space. This is not any cafe. And two minutes worth of research would tell you, oh, this is the EMI canteen. <laughs> yeah, well, those people aren't Beatle people. Pick it up if you can, if you want to. But I am also sure, as in the ways of all things, these photos will end up back on the internet in this form. Right. Because people always scan and uh, snap 
pictures of pictures. And, and in fact, I, I did just that because uh, uh, we were talking previously about uh, John Lennon raising his guitar on the rooftop. And, and you had said that, oh, I don't think I've seen him do that before. Well, Ringo has a photo of him doing just that. There you go. That's the first thing. You know, that was uh, Valentine's Day with Ringo, and that, that was uh, a good time. And uh, the proceeds from that do all go to charity. So right. good on him. And he's also announced that there's a new uh, All-Stars tour coming up in May. Coming this summer. Uh, Edgar Winter is returning to the All-Stars. Right. And old friends, you know, Colin Hay. and Pretty much otherwise the same as the previous version, which is only slightly altered from the one he's toured with for the last eight or nine years. But it is nice to get uh, Hamish out there with him again. Yeah. Yeah. That, that would be a good show. But it's not coming anywhere near us. Todd is busy going out with Revolver. Darren Murphy. Yeah, Darren Murphy and, and that group. Todd drifts in and out of the All-Stars. I'm, I'm sure sooner or later we'll, we'll see another All-Star tour with Todd, assuming can, Ringo continues touring. Right. I keep hearing these rumors that Ringo is just going to stop touring and do, uh, uh, do a month a year at one of the Las Vegas casinos. Well, he's 82. He wants to keep playing... But he doesn't really want to travel the world right. anymore. Let's keep playing, but he wants to return to his hotel room and then walk back out again and perform. Or for that matter, I mean, you know, if he doesn't do weekends, he can always fly home on weekends. Right. L.A. to, to Vegas is nothing, especially if you have a private plane. Right. Now, that other Beatle has also decided he's going back out on the road. He is. He's, he's announced a handful of dates from the... Uh, End of April through the end of May. And what is the name of that tour? The Got Back Tour. Now, I can see him wanting to play off a of Get Back. You know, you, after the film, it's like, oh, this is what everyone's paying attention to. But I'm sorry, Got Back only makes me think of Sir Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> Baby Got Back. Well, Baby's in black. <laughs> and Paul is also in black sometimes. Baby's got back, and I'm feeling. <laughs> and then, then there's also uh, if you, uh, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple years ago, and there's lots and lots of versions of this on YouTube. Part of his little stagemanship was uh, in the middle of "And I Love Her." Paul would turn around during the solo and, well, shake his bum a little bit. <laughs> well. A 70-plus-year-old man still getting the screams from the 60-plus-year-old <laughs> yeah. women in the audience. It's all relative. <laughs> but still, the closest the tour is coming to us is Fort Worth on May the 17th. Right. If you haven't seen Paul, yeah, his voice may not be in the best of shape, but when you're there in the stadium or arena, it kind of doesn't matter. You're there for the show. You're there to see Paul McCartney. And later, when you're listening to the various audience tapes, you might go, oh, well, yeah, he did uh, miss this or miss that. But you're not going to be upset or angry at the show you get. No, I don't think so. And and there is no perfect show. I mean, that's part of a live show is, is going to be, you know, but as far as I know, he still plays every song in the original key. And I saw Elton on his farewell <laughs> tour, which came through town. Uh, yeah. Elton does not play every song and anything approaching the original. Right. Key. He, it's the Elton John El Basso tour. But, but I mean, again, it doesn't matter when I was sitting there, it's like, yeah, this is a really good show. Right. And it was fun to listen to in the moment. Right. I've since listened to the tapes, and while it's not bad, it's like you can you start to hear things. Paul McCartney got back on tour across North America, bigger, better, and back in 2022. Paul McCartney got back. I mean, he's not going to be doing Monkberry Moon Delight or anything that takes that kind of screamy thing. Well, but he still does Helter Skelter. I mean, granted, it's a volume down version of Helter Skelter, but he, it, it's it's also not the blues version. He he does still scream to the extent he can. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, you you know, you're talking about well, his voice isn't what it was. Well, th that's the kind of song where you notice it's not what it was. You know, he doesn't do Helter Skelter like he did in 1968. The one he used to drop 
and he he's going to refuse to do it is is maybe I'm amazed. That's the one he really can't play yeah. properly anymore. I think. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because that's a pretty high uh, melody line. We heard him trying to sing along in three, two, one, and that wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the business of live performance got us thinking about, well, what was one of our favorite films of the Beatles playing live? The very first from the U.S., really. So the Beatles flew over to the U.S. on the 7th of February, 1964. Do we know much about when the show at the Washington Coliseum was arranged? Well, I, I haven't found a specific date, but there's an interview with the son of the man who owned the Washington Coliseum, and he's pretty certain that it all took place in the early weeks of January. And considering the, the concert was in February 11th, it was a pretty short time frame. So you, you think it was while they were in Paris that Brian was setting all of this up. It could be. The story he tells is his father came in and said, do you know about this group called the Beatles? And of course he did because I want to hold her hand was like the song at that point. And so it's interesting that the other concert that they did while they were in the States was at Carnegie Hall. I'm sorry, Carnegie Hall. Um, And that was set up by Sid Bernstein as part of them coming over. And so they booked the Washington Coliseum show because there was a couple of days between their appearance on Ed Sullivan and the Carnegie show. Yeah, well, I mean, especially because they were originally going to just take a quick flight over and a quick flight back. Right. <laughs> I think it was George who said it, there was a blizzard, basically. Lots of snow, very cold. He's like, I'm not going to get into a fucking airplane. Well, and in fact, one of their original opening acts did not make it because of the right, snow. Right, chiffons weren't able to show up. And, you know, if you look at the Maisel's Brothers film, it's obviously very cold. Lots of snow. Hello. 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 Who's got a ciggy? I have. Do you want one? Yeah. Can I have one? You yeah. can't have one. You're on, you're on the air. Yeah. You're on tape. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. The fact that George was still recovering from this pretty bad flu he apparently had, uh, you can see why he was going to spend as little time in the cold as he possibly could. <laughs> right. But he was amazingly active in the Maisel's Brothers film. You know, he fooled around and toyed with the journalists and, you know. He- Joined in all the fun, yes. I, I think they'd given him a little bit of a, either liquid courage or pill form in courage, but... Uh, <laughs> I think he'd had a little bit of something. <laughs> Where's Bob Dylan when you need him? <laughs> uh, George's sister was also with them, although we don't see her in the train, I don't think. I don't recall seeing her, but she could have been there. Cynthia was over here, but I don't see her in that film either. As you mentioned, it is reminiscent of the train footage in Hard Day's Night. Right. I mean, the footage is pretty similar. And, and you can see Ringo's budding interest in films and film cameras. He he likes the clapper. <laughs> right. We've mentioned this before. This is the only other time when you have lots and lots of hours of concentrated Beatles. Because the Maisels did indeed get about 50 hours worth of footage during that first U.S. visit. And Apple has purchased that. So they have all those film canisters. Right. It's a great little film. The stuff of the hotel room is priceless because you can see kind of the culture shock in their responses and comedy. America is different to them. I think Paul at one point mentions the fact that celebrities kind of drop into a commercial at the drop of a hat. They're always trying to sell something on the radio and on TV. Well, in a 9,000 seat arena, that was a pretty big deal for them. They hadn't played anything of that scale yet. Right. Well, it's weird you say that because my figure said it was a 7,000. 89-something is the number of seats that the Washington Coliseum could hold at the time. Huh. That's weird. That was the stated official attendance. Well, yeah, agreed that the attendance was that high, but the facility officially did not seat that many people. Uh, That may well have been, yes. It was completely oversold. Even though he had he had no time to sell them, and the tickets just like 
went out the door immediately. Well, you know, uh, tickets went $2, $3, and $4, which in today's money would be like 18 27 and 36 and they just went and i mean they oversold the coliseum but there were still throngs of fans outside the coliseum so they could have sold more yeah so post sullivan they then had this train trip arranged when george and others you know there were people telling brian you don't want to fly you really don't want to fly so they arranged this train car and they got on this train And there's a quote here. My father wasn't in the habit of meeting his acts when they arrived in town, but he met the Beatles. He had been stationed in Liverpool during the war, so I think he might have felt some connection to them. He didn't expect the crowd, especially on such a snowy day. So, you know, they they pulled into the station and there was a crowd much like what their arrival at JFK had been. Right. So, you know, even before they hit the stadium, it was like, we've got people here watching us. You know, I guess maybe they really hadn't, quite figured out that they really were this big in the states i mean you know they they had heard the numbers on sullivan but as john would say shortly thereafter well that's just like one man with a camera i don't see that many millions of people yeah for sure but what i recall is that there was a huge amount of fan magazines that suddenly inundated the the landscape magazines dedicated to each beetle or the Beatles themselves put out by dozens of companies. It seems like I have a bunch of them in my collection. Whoever could get a license. Right. And, or or make it up, you know, I mean, what I know now, when you flip through the magazines, the information is all bull. I mean, not all of it, but for the most part, it's made up and stock photos of the Beatles and cutouts and, portraits of paul mccartney and that's why it's really pretty crazy that uh, love me do the michael braun book was as good as it was yeah as good and as relatively honest i mean you know that's the only one that john lennon recommended at the time and you can see why there was truth in it and there was a lot of truth out there (laughs) i recall that scene in the Maisel brothers film when paul's listening to the radio in the back of the car and and the DJ says, On tomorrow night at 7, the Beatles read their own poetry on a documentary, Meet the Beatles. Paul looks over at John and looks back and goes, Oh, no. oh really? I don't understand this. Tomorrow night from 7 to 8, here it wins. Don't. We, we ain't written no poetry. Which is, of course, brilliantly parodied in the rubble. Fred O'Day and Flushing, ladies and gentlemen, WC, WC, the Bloody the K. You've got the yeah. twist and run. Yes, Soft yes, in the yes, head, yes. sounds like. The whole world's eyes are on Flushing because the Prefab 4 are coming to town tomorrow to talk about their trousers. Well, I don't know about this. Do you know about this? No. So, you know, they were uh, subjected to people who had no idea. There was just this mania, and people were saying all sorts of stuff, trying to make a buck. They arrived in Washington. Carol James, who was the first one to play I Want to Hold Your Hand, was there. And they managed to get uh, Marsha Albert, the young woman who actually requested Carol James play the song back in late 63, to show up as well. There was no school that day, so so she, she wasn't skipping school. She was actually legitimately out of school because of the uh, storm. Were, were they out of the school because of the storm or because it was like President's Day or something? Well, according to Marsha Albert... There was no school that day because of the big snowstorm, so she says. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll I'll accept that. Nobody proved it by math. She also says that she got in the car going down to the Coliseum with Cynthia and with George's sister. So that answers that question as well. They did a couple of press conferences at the stadium before, and audio and some video of those are available I don't know if they're up on YouTube right now. I mean, you know, things go up and down so quickly on YouTube, but they do exist and they're out there. And you can see Marsh Albert with Carol James fielding questions from the press along with the Beatles. Right. The opening act was Tommy Rowe and Tommy Rowe was a friend of the Beatles. I mean, they had opened for him, Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe during the 63 theater tour. Didn't John and Tommy Rowe get into a bit of a Barney John Lennon pours a bottle of beer over Chris Montez's head. Well, Chris took a slim view of this and went mad and took a punch at John. 
Paul tried to intervene, but in the scuffle that was going on, landed on his back and knocked his head on the pavement, nearly knocking himself out. Anyway, they managed to stop the punch. Then John started abusing Chris and... <laughs> as well as Tommy Rowe. So Tommy Rowe took a swing at John, Neil blocked the punch. There was mayhem going on. And the rest of that tour, after that incident, the Americans sat at the back of the bus and the Brits sat at the front of the bus and Neil, my dad, sat in the middle of the bus just refereeing, just keeping everyone at bay. <laughs> John never stayed mad at anybody for too long. Right. And the other thing, Beatles-wise, from Tommy Rowe, he's the one who came up with Sheila, the song to, they did for the BBC and that they did in Hamburg. And, you know, George sang it. It's the faux Buddy Holly song. Right. And then the other two opening acts, you got the Righteous Brothers who showed up. and It was so interesting to, to see how these uh, kids, mainly the girls, were reacting to these boring guys. You know, it had somewhat never happened in our country, you know. And uh, so it was remarkable to watch. I mean, after we got off stage and we, you know, stuck our head out there, it was uh, it was unbelievable. So the thing about the Righteous Brothers, they would start out on the August Beatles tour, but they would quickly decide, we don't want to do this. Yeah, must be a hard gig. I don't know if they thought that maybe the top of the mania might have been filed off by the time they started in August, but... They knew what they were in for. They were opening up this Washington Coliseum show where absolutely no one wanted to see the opening acts. Yeah. And then Brian had made an arrangement with CBS to actually film the show and put it out to theaters in March. Yeah, that's also a, a little murky because you know, CBS did the filming, but it didn't go out as a CBS thing to the theaters. As I understand, the closed circuit aspect was over telephone lines so the quality would not have been the best i don't think so i mean i missed that altogether I, I certainly would have gone to see it march 14th and 15th and there's the trailer that they played in theaters you can find that on youtube right they spliced it together with some uh, leslie gore footage and some beach boys footage which was not in washington dc but was from california in both instances right <laughs> filling the bill because the you know washington coliseum show was only 30 minutes approximately well hey i mean you know get back was only an hour <laughs> and they showed that closed circuit you know and it was actually slightly longer it was only 12 songs but it was slightly longer than 30 minutes <laughs> but not much more i mean even then maybe they could have put together a little 10 minute here's the history of the beatles well back then it wouldn't have been very long <laughs> for that matter they could have even put the Beatles appearance on Sullivan up front. I suppose. Yeah. You know, if, if it was CBS doing it, you could just put the performance from the ninth, the live and the recorded either end of it. Right. They could have spiced in some footage from the Pete best combo. And <laughs> that would have been, it. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been. So the other thing about the Washington Coliseum at the time is, well, they had them performing in the round. Yeah. Very strange. The Washington Coliseum basically was for boxing exhibitions and basketball. And, and a minor league hockey team, yes. It was in the round, but it wasn't particularly well thought out. And it struck me, you know, looking at the footage, how low the stage was. There's a staircase on one side, but during one point when the drum riser gets stuck, we see Mal just put his hands on the stage and hop <laughs> up on it. So it was no more than about two or three feet. Right. And completely surrounded by these screaming girls. And reporters. And the drum kit from the opening acts is sitting there. To give you an idea of exactly how far it was for the top, you can see the symbol peeking out over the stage. Yeah. Very haphazard. And I think it's not only Mal, but Brian Somerville, who is acting as their press liaison, got up and helped a couple of times. And then after that, stagehands dressed in beetle wigs. <laughs> well, and the DJs were dressed in beetle wigs during the introduction. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of comical. And in the audience that night was future vice president al gore <laughs> you know we like to think of of al gore being this just sort of fellow. it might have helped him out if he mentioned some of these washington coliseum stories you know peppered them into his uh, 
political speeches. <laughs> I remember when Paul looked at me. Exactly. You know, because when he was running for president, all we got was this, you know, stiff, slightly boring guy talking about lockboxes. And it's like, yeah, come on, Al, give us something. <laughs> you were there in 64. I mean, of course, he comes from a political family. You were there in 64 and you actually saw the Beatles at the costume. Wow. Well, you know, right. You know, it doesn't have to relate too much. Just find some link. At the very least, it makes you a little bit more human. <laughs> right. And really, all he needed was a couple of hundred more votes. <laughs> this is the film from 2010. Apple owns the rights to the Washington Coliseum film. And for the longest time, we had just these horrible grainy bootlegs, which were missing the final song. Yeah. Emphasis on the word bootlegs. Yeah. Which I suppose is one of the reasons why I thought there might have been film copies out there somewhere that was where these things came from we get a peter jackson style three or four minute introduction you know going through plane arrival playing sullivan getting on the train getting to washington the arrival at washington and then the film proper starts with the carol james coming on to the stage and while they're setting up he points over at ringo in case you don't know who this is that's ringo Starr. An introduction that we will hear many times through the years listening to live bootlegs. Yeah, he's surrounded by various other stage managers and people working the stage. Oh, and instantly, that stage doesn't look any more sturdy than what they were playing on on the roof. Yeah. Now that we have some really good prints of those pictures, you look at the stage, it's like, that's not even two by fours. That's really just plywood nailed together. It's very slapdash. And the equipment itself is not the best. It goes out several times during the show. Yeah. I'm not sure what the sound situation was in the film. There are mics that don't work, but obviously come up at some point. A situation we're not entirely unfamiliar with. <laughs> right. And a couple of times when Harrison's guitar just leaps up. So someone is turning something up, but the amps aren't mic'd. And in fact, when they're on the other side of the stage facing away from the amps, it's like, you know, they already can't hear anything <laughs> with the sound moving out the other direction. Are we sure they know what they're doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously they do because they keep playing and they keep playing well. Yeah. There are songs that are much faster than on record. It's clearly enthusiasm, the power of what's going on, but they do pretty good. The thing that impressed me, and I noticed later as I was flipping through reviews at the time, was how powerful and spot on John's falsetto is on I Want to Hold Your Hand and Please Please Me for Me to You when he hits that high note. He always hits it. He's not playing with monitors. He just hits that note and it's there. Because if you're slightly flat on that, it's going to sound really bad. And he hits it every time on all those songs. I think I'm pretty sure that certainly John, Paul, and George, but you know, maybe all four of them had perfect pitch. Perhaps. That is my belief, although I've never actually seen any validation of that right so the first song they play why they chose to open with roll over beethoven why they make george the canary in the coal mine you could have just answered it right there <laughs> let's throw george out there and see what happens <laughs> i mean it's a good song but it's also not really a concert opener no and, and american audiences weren't familiar with that song at that point well, I mean, they knew the original. Well, yeah. Maybe. Again, we're talking about 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds that were pretty young kids when the original had come out. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's all right. It's, it's not a bad opener. It opened up the Beatles' second album in America. Which was not out yet. So. Right, but it, it clearly is an opener. <laughs> I don't know if it opens the album because they had opened the show with it or if it was the other way around. Again, as we discussed in the Rubber Soul Revolver show, they really had little knowledge of what Capitol was doing to the albums. Right. They knew that they were different, but they didn't pay that much attention to, here's the song order. And at the very beginning, yeah, George's vocal is not coming out great, so he has to switch microphones over to John's mic. Right. Roll over Beethoven, gotta hit it again today. 
he could clearly hear that he he wasn't being amplified. Yeah. On the makeshift stage, you can actually clearly see the jelly beans as they were being thrown. Yeah. You know, I was talking earlier about the flood of fan magazines. I mean, there had to be in a short period of time, because we're talking February 11th, and let's say the beginning of January was the start of this huge swell for the Beatles, that the fans collectively took this story of the jelly babies in England. And so they were being thrown, from what I could tell, all directions. And and that's strictly from the fan magazines. Yeah, later on, we're going to get this one shot while they're playing of this girl up on like the second row, just enthusiastically as she possibly can, throwing what must be handfuls of jelly beans up on the stage. Right. You always think that it would have been normal for Lennon to react. (laughs) <laughs> but John was nervous. I mean, you know, he did, he does his crip thing twice during the show. Normally he'd do it once, but here he does it twice. Right. So because George is on one mic and one mic is not working, John and Paul are harmonizing on the other mic. Yeah, there's different mic work. Yeah, I mean, but what they can do, you know, they clearly know each other so well, even at this early point. Yeah. You think the harmony when they really couldn't hear each other all that well might not be spot on, but it is dead perfect. Yeah, they hit it for sure. Particularly noticeable in the next song. So the second song is For Me to You. Right. We get some great crowd shots. For the first time, we get what I call the blonde girl flipping out. (laughs) Raising her hands and is just screaming at the top of her lungs. That's with the clenched fists? Yeah. Yeah. There's talk about uh, how after Beatles shows, it was clear that some young people had lost control of their bladders. And, you know, I'm not saying she did, but she looks like she could have. The line, I guess it was in Shout, was uh, there wasn't a dry seat in the house. (laughs) Not so much with regards to the Coliseum show, but to some of the British shows from the previous year. Yeah. (laughs) Then we move on. We we get our first long introduction, and it's Paul, of course. Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, good evening. How do you do? The song, the song we like to carry on with now, this one, which we recorded on a, an LP that we made. Uh, that's English for album, an, an album that we made. And we'd like you, we'd like you, if you would, to sort of join in and clap your hands, you know, and stamp your feet. Yeah, yeah you know, everybody, just join in all together, okay? Alright? The song. Yeah. The songs go, I saw her standing there. The thing that I find interesting is the name album wasn't that common to both countries. The whole thing of collection of songs was when 78s had to be packaged together in an album. That's where the name came from, I thought. Well, it clearly was an issue because he makes a point of it. Do you know, do you remember, was the term LP or long player something that we actually used in this country? I mean, it's LP as opposed to an EP, which we didn't have. But Right. I can remember using both terms, but album was always the term that normally was used. Interesting. Maybe it had changed at some point, but the story I'd always heard was with 78s, you had to actually have three or four of them, and they were packaged literally in an album. Right. And so this is the first time we get John doing his crip thing with uh, clap your hands and stamp your feet, right. which uh, Ron Howard cut out from eight days a week, because I'd also taking a peek at that while we were doing this it's like oh okay well yeah you know it's an odd part of the Beatles story that uh, is part of history and yet it's, it's uncomfortable history yeah but it, you know we can't ignore it that was so much a part of john lennon's personality the song is uh saw her standing there which was actually probably bigger in this country than it was in the uk at that point in time it was an album track, albeit an album opener over there, whereas here it was the B-side of the single. Right. Back when that single is what you bought. I mean, certainly Meet the Beatles sales were really high, but most kids had the 45. And so it was those two songs that you were introduced to. It has a great single. I want to hold your hand. I started standing there. It is not 
unreasonable to call it the best single that they ever put out in any country of the early days. You know, pre-Rain and Paperback Writer. That's the next one that you might be able to, you know, maybe Day Tripper and we can work it out. But even though they didn't put it together, those two songs together is, you know, just an amazing single. It is. Paul and Ringo, they are just so spot on. The rhythm section is just right in there. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't recognize the quality and really just how both nuanced and hard rocking Ringo could be, watch this song. And it's not even the best one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do shorten this version. They cut out the going back to the bridge after the lead. And George plays a different solo. Not the solo from the album. Well, he does that all the time. <laughs> I don't think he played the same solo twice, but it's, it's still worth mentioning here. Yeah. And then uh, among the audience shots, I noticed the two girls in the uh, the red and white striped or, or check shirts clapping very badly. <laughs> yes. There are several times when uh, the camera will cut to the audience and the, somebody will be singing, but like two words behind. <laughs> Can't really figure out. What's going on? Is the film not synced right? It's hard to say. because, Or could they just not hear and they just, okay, they're about at this part of the song. <laughs> we know the words, but. We can't clap either. Oh, okay. They've gone to the bridge. <laughs> After that, this is the first time we see them actually turning things around. Right. We see John, Paul, and George walk to the other side of the stage. They only bring one of the microphones. <laughs> then they remember, oh, we have to turn Ringo around too. So they, they help him turn around. Then they have to do the other mics. And, and as I mentioned, the amps are still facing away from them. So it's so awkward. Not much they can do about that. Yeah, it's really awkward. George introduces the next song. The next song. Hello. The next song is a track off our Capital album. And it's called This Boy. After the success of this song on Solomon, that three-part harmony, live and barely being able to hear each other. And it's perfect. It's not perfect. Okay. <laughs> because they don't hold things out like the arrangement has them hold, you know. Okay. So um, they get the basic version of it out, but the little flourishes they cut out because that would have been hard to. Hard to almost impossible. Right. And this is the first time that they really get the spotlight going. There's one shot in particular where the spotlight comes down on John and you get just the. The corner of Paul and George's faces, because all three of them are on one mic, that's a really nice shot. Yeah. As far as filmmaking goes. Yeah, that one's almost the best piece of film. The way they sing and are grouped together, and even the looks that they exchange back and forth, it's the best part for me. Towards the end of the song, you you can actually hear the cops shouting to the audience on the soundtrack. Right. (laughs) Then Paul goes up and uh, introduces the next song. The next song is one which... uh... There's also an album over here, and uh, the song we hope you like it. Hello. Hope you like it. Hello. It's called "On My Loving." John looks around confused. He obviously can't hear anything. The cameras move in for a close-up. We get our first real shots of uh, what I like to call sweaty Paul. Uh, George and John are on one mic now, and George dominates the harmony here. Yeah, but vocally, it's really good. Ringo's playing so hard, you can see the riser just shaking on the stage there. Yeah, he's way into it. Then they do the unison bow. Right. Then we get another crowd shot, which I'm sure conspiracy theorists love because, well, you see a a girl pull something out, which looks suspiciously like an iPhone from her purse. I mean, it's probably just a wallet or, or a little compact, but just from the film, it's like, well, that looks like a phone. Yeah. So you don't believe she was from the future? I don't know. She might be. You know. Well, yeah. When time travel 
becomes a thing. You know, you, you know that people are going to go there. Exactly. It's like, so we can try time travel now. Where do you want to go? I want to see the Beatles first performance in the United States. Well, okay, you're going and take your friends. Then Paul, he's learned something. So he drags the microphone with him as he walks over to Ringo. <laughs> right. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Well, uh, for this spot, we like to feature somebody who doesn't often get much of a chance to sing. Just once a show. He hands the mic to Ringo and Ringo does the thing where he puts it between his legs. <laughs> right. No innuendo there. That's literally what he did with the vocal mic. Right. And he's often commented that to some extent that would affect his playing because he had to play around the vocal mic, not just in this show, in any number of occasions. You've probably noticed that in the Ed Sullivan footage, when the camera boom moves over the front three and moves to Ringo, the volume of the drums comes up because there's a mic, <laughs> you know? And so. It doesn't come up, you know, a whole lot, but noticeable pulls back. Well, Paul is taking a mic, sticking it on Ringo's drums. It's going to pick up the drums a whole lot more. And again, I don't know what the sound situation is, but that mic has been working up to that point. And now when Ringo gets it, it's just barely on. It's working slightly. But, you know, it would, it would have to be something like that because otherwise the drums would be overwhelming. Glenn Johns wasn't there to uh, do the drum miking. Glenn Johns, the man who is known for his drum miking, among other things. Right. Not just his wardrobe. Right. Yeah, I want to be your man. Ringo's vocal is mostly drowned out, which is kind of a shame. But it, it too, seems pretty good. And his playing, which we can hear, is great. Yeah. And John and Paul's choruses are really good. The Beatles then turn around again, and, and we can hear Paul commenting on that mic. Thank you very much. Hello? Uh, no, no, it's no good, that one. <laughs> we want to go back to the cavern. <laughs> the, then what is uh, quite possibly my favorite introduction of this whole show. We would like to sing a song now, which was a record for us, and it was our first hit in England. And this is... In England, way back in England. And uh, this song was released in America. It didn't do anything. It was released later again, and, uh, well, it's doing something, you know. So, this, yeah, it is. So. And John has a good laugh over that. Right. Well, that's true. So, we'd like to play for you now a song called Please Please Me. And this is noticeably faster. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I've always been surprised that they gave the line to George's guitar rather than have John play harmonica on it. It may have had something to do with the miking and what they could get away with. Could be. I wasn't there. The camera seems to move in a little bit. The angle down on the stage is a little bit closer and a little bit tighter. A little bit older, a little bit slower. <laughs> but the thing is, at this camera angle, these four guys are now the Beatles as we know them. Right. John is on the right. He's got that defiant stare, and his legs are just bowed wide. George in the middle. He doesn't quite do the shuffle from Hard Day's Night, but he's thinking about it. <laughs> and then you got Paul on the other side. Doing the McCartney thing. Yeah. Little McCartney dance twist thing. John with the Liverpool leg. <laughs> we cut around to our friend, the blonde girl, and she's still freaking out. You know, it's three or four songs later. She has not calmed down yet. Right. The only thing that I can say that's wrong with his performance is John seems to have a bit of a frog in his throat. Just a little bit. <laughs> Hater. 
But I mean, again, it must have been really cold on that stage. Yeah. I mean, it's not bad, but it's just, he's got just a slight bit of hoarseness and he gets over it pretty quickly. It's an old 30 year old building in the, one of the worst snowstorms in, in years. And it had to have been cold. <laughs> Again, it kind of mirrors the rooftop in a yeah, couple of ways. Yeah. Paul comes back. Hi, George. It's all now. This one, which is a bit slower and a bit quieter, this is a song which is also on the album. You see, we're plugging this album. The song's called Till It Was You. Paul being Paul. Right. Why they were plugging that song, I'm not real sure. Paul wouldn't let them get away without doing at least one of those. And I mean, you know, they just played it on Sullivan, so. Yeah. Even though they figured that it would be mostly kids. Well, there might be a few of the moms out there. We got to do something for them. Yeah. But in this mass of screaming teenagers, it was just an interesting choice. It mostly gets drowned out, but I appreciate George's guitar work. It's spot on when he didn't really need to be that tight with it. Yeah, for sure. Then that's followed by She Loves You with no intro. Right. And of course, that was very familiar. That was one of the hit singles that were out at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah music. I, I guess it had been re-released. I mean, it was April when it was in the top five, so. Right. If it wasn't out, it would be out within the next couple of weeks. Was that Tolly? Swan. She says she loves you, Ringo's doing his his smiley thing, you know, just smiling and bobbing his head back and forth. Right. And we see a girl holding up a, a microphone to a tape recorder somewhere in the middle of the audience. That was back when you could take all the photos you wanted and record. Most people didn't have tape recorders. Or film cameras either. I mean, that's Ron Howard who actually got some footage off of film cameras for eight days a week. Yeah. I mean, mostly it was like brownie box cameras, crappy to operate. But I'm sure if anything came out on that audio tape, it was nothing but screams. Right. The proximity to the audience. And this is the first time that we see someone has a bed sheet that they have uh, turned into a makeshift sign. And it's huge. It is literally a full bed sheet. <laughs> and more jelly babies. John's a little bit peeved and he says, come on, and, and they have to switch sides again. Yeah, right. And they don't even know which side they're switching to. They, they switch all the way around, then it's like, nope, nope, we need to turn back 90 degrees. We need to face those people over there. Yeah, that had to have been annoying. This is when we see Mal jump up on the stage. Yeah, and I think Brian J Somerville jumps up with him during that switch. So Paul says, The man told us to keep moving around, you see, so... We'll keep it moving. They're moving quickly towards the end of the set. Thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you very much. This, this next song that we'd like to sing, we'd uh, before we do it, we'd like to thank everybody here in uh, America, Washington, America, for. We'd like to thank. We'd like to thank everybody for uh, buying this particular record and starting this thing off in America and giving us the chance to come here and see you all in Washington. Thank you! Then go right into I Want to Hold Your Hand. For what seems like the first time, the audience focuses on some guys, guys who apparently had buzz cuts about a month ago, and you, you, you can see them trying to grow their hair while they're sitting there. <laughs> hey, the girls like that. We want to be like that. Right. It reminds me of nothing so much as the, the Charlie Brown dancing. <laughs> right. Them sort of bobbing back and forth in their seats. You know, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, everybody's experience is unique to them. But what I remember is that, you know, all these other songs were floating around, you know, the Beatles songs. But really, I Want to Hold Your Hand was the song. It was the one that was just everywhere. Uh, and so it still was that, this uh, song that defined what was going on. I mean, it was magic to a certain yeah, extent. Yeah, it really was. In this version, they have a little bit of problem with the guitar intro, a little bit of sticky fingers. <laughs> right. Because it's cold, you see. The volume on Paul's mic is not up. You can sort of just barely hear Paul. Right. Although John's singing has now recovered. He's singing well here. 
Yeah, this was another song that just because Paul's mic is affected when John does that great leap. You know, he hits it perfectly. You know, his falsetto is just amazing. It was commented on by a reviewer as well, how well his falsetto came across. I think it's not a stretch to call this one of their best performances in the States. Shay is really good, but Shay, they'd already started to get a little bit bored with it. Yeah, it was kind of samey by that point. You know, here they're still excited and they still want to absolutely 100% put on the best possible performance. By a year later, it's like, okay, well, well, you know, great. As long as we put on a good show. Well, I think that, you know, their perceptions had to have changed. At this point, everybody's screaming for them. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. It's just, but by 65, the girls were screaming to scream. It's like John said, we could have sent out waxwork dummies and... And it would have been the same because it was just, it became an event rather than a show. And this concert, it definitely was about them. Yes. You know, especially like you say, you put this right in the middle of the Sullivan shows. Now, I mean, you know, we have no footage of the Carnegie Hall show, but from all reports, the Carnegie Hall show didn't go nearly as well. They had people sitting in chairs on stage with the Beatles. Yeah, literally six feet from them. Yeah. Uh, there was so much of this that was slapdash. Although we have the United States Musicians Unions to thank for the fact that we don't have a record of it. Because, well, George Martin had intended to record both of the Carnegie Hall shows. Right. It was part of the reason why he was there. The Musicians Union said, no, you're not part of our Musicians Union. And they even offered to pay to get him into the union. It's like, no, we don't want to set that precedent. And then the Beatles said, well, no, George Martin, no recording. Right, because you might have Dave Dexter doing it. (laughs) As they pull in to uh, the end of the show here. uh... Thank you. Well, um, for this particular song now. We'd like you to do the same as you did before for our sort of standing there. Clap your hands again. And uh, stop. Once again, John does his thing. Right. This is a song that was popular uh, in America about a couple of years ago. It was recorded by a group called the Isley Brothers. Anyway. We'd like to sing the song they made famous. It's called Twist and Shout. And it really was just a couple of years ago. Not even two years ago. I think it was 62, wasn't it? They had learned it during their next to the last day in Hamburg, I think. Ah. So anyway, it's called Twist and Shout. And we see a shot of the reporters as they're sort of standing around and taking their photos and getting ready. And there's even some of the reporters who are kind of getting into it. I thought that was kind of a neat twist. No pun intended. (laughs) And it was a good version. And there's one bit where they all three turn around and look at Ringo. I wasn't sure why. Huh. It didn't seem like anything was wrong, but Paul's looking at Ringo and saying something to him. And then two beats later, we see George and John turn around, maybe to see what was going on. Yeah. I have to look at that again because I didn't take note. And in the audience, we see a girl with one of those huge I love the Beatles buttons. And she is clearly about to faint. (laughs) Or wet her pants. I think she was probably closer to fainting. <laughs> she had that glazed look in her eyes. Right. Then they rotate again for the final song. Paul gets so many of the introductions here, which is kind of interesting. You know, I, I thought they had normally split the introductions up a little bit more amongst them. But again, maybe it's here. Maybe it's we got to give them our best. And Paul's the one who's best at talking and charming the crowd here. Yeah. Well, you know, I, so, I think Paul takes to that somewhat naturally and john just kind of does well it's on this album and he just doesn't seem all that into it so this song will definitely be our last one something paul still says to this day (laughs) we'd like to thank everybody for coming it's a big favorite of ours and into long tall sally right great way to end the show you know paul's little richard vocal is at the top of its game here yeah and i'll tell you the last bit of this song it's as animated as I've ever seen Ringo. You know, he is just pounding out 
the end of this song when when he's going, I'm going to have some fun tonight. And he is just going at it. He's a powerhouse at that point. Yeah, well, I mean, as we mentioned, you know, he is great through this whole show, but no, I will agree with you. You know, he is almost out of control here in a good way. You know, we talk about, I don't see Keith Moon doing better than that here. No, yeah, it's it's definitely outstanding without a, without a doubt. So then you can you, you can almost feel the arena taking a breath out as as we see you know people you know start to pack gear up and they, we see the Beatles get off the stage and and everybody leaves and we learn that this was presented by National General Corps, directed by Lee Tannen, the Washington D.C. portion, and we learn that. This program has been presented by the courtesy of Brian Epstein and NEMS Enterprises Limited. Watch for the Beatles movie to be released in August. That would have been Hard Day's Night, right? That would have been Hard Day's Night, yep. And then it closes with, thank you for being so fabulous and good, and we, we have to have the Beatles back again. And, and it would take a couple years, but the Beatles would indeed come back to D.C. And so we're basically saying this is probably one of the best shows that they did. Certainly it's one of the best that's on film. And so. I have a review, a one-line review of the show from a guy, I think from a Philadelphia paper, who's called them imported hillbillies who look like sheepdogs and sound like alley cats in agony. We're also getting that uh, other review of the first Sullivan show that's, you know, that's going around the internet now that Sullivan was wasting his time with these English yokels. Right. We have to close this show with what happened after their performance. So the Beatles got invited to uh, a party over at the British embassy. Right. That very night. And well, apparently the uh, hoity-toity British political scene didn't quite know how to act not only did they push and shove the beatles the british embassy in in washington some bloody animal cut ringo's hair you know in the middle of that and he decided he'd uh, cut a lock of my hair off so that got me well uptight and i just started screaming at him and we didn't stay there that long i walked out of that you know swearing at all of them and i just left in the middle of it very famous incident. The result of it, the Beatles went to Brian Epstein and said, we were never going to do anything like this again, this this sort of event, which is, sets up what happens in Manila in 1966. On their way out, we do get the, the priceless John Lennon quip to the reporter. It's like, uh, what's your name? Eric. Eric, say hello to the American people. I'm John, really. Yeah, exactly. And it's oh, and the reporter looks so confused. Just doesn't get the joke. And in, you know all the stuff. It, it's like John, Paul, George, and Ringo. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. So you know, here's a reporter who's going to get a story, but he hasn't even got that. Maybe he's just sort of drifting in from the future, and he's thinking of Eric Idle. <laughs> Although you know, again, that's the wrong ruddle too. So indeed. If you haven't seen it, it is still available from iTunes. Apple has never seen fit to release this on Blu-ray or DVD. Yeah. It is available for purchase from iTunes. I would hope that Apple would really put together a really nice video collection of what we have of the Beatles live. You know, you put this together with Shay together with maybe not the Japan shows, although maybe one of the Japan shows and, and maybe the, the German show and, and you add in like the drop-in, that could be a really great package. Yeah, drop-in is a great footage. We get a fair bit of this in anthology, but it's not together. And we could bring Al Gore into and introduce it. <laughs> All right, so thanks everybody. We'll be back next week with a new show. See you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
invite you, if you would, to sort of join in and clap your hands, you know, and stamp your feet. tell you one thing there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they got no bread to do it on not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but this the scraping the barrel for funds to keep going Turned up nice again. 